Hey everybody, welcome to Fantasy Football at Night. This is your host, Thomas Christopher. With me today is James, but you may know him better on Twitter as at WhatMoney3000. James is a contributor for Rotorballer, for fantasy's sake, and Gridiron Rating, and he's also the commissioner of our Contract Dynasty League. James, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. You know, it's uh, the day of the Hall of Fame game, and I'm uh, excited to start talking about fantasy football as actual football kind of starts to be real. Yeah, man, we're, we're inching closer and closer. So let's start at the beginning. How did you become a fan of the NFL, and then how did you get involved in fantasy football? Yeah, you know, uh, oddly enough, I became a fan of fantasy football before I became a fan of the NFL. Uh, I got my roots in fantasy sports and fantasy baseball. I'm Oddly enough, a baseball guy first and foremost, and I'll never shy away from that. And uh, ultimately, I decided to join a fantasy football one league year, a fantasy football league one year, despite not knowing anything about football. Growing up in Cleveland, the Browns moved and they moved right after I really would have started paying attention to them. And I just never paid attention to football. So my first year in my first league, my entire bench was all quarterbacks because they were all ranked so well. I had no skill positions. I didn't really understand what football was, but soon, obviously, like most people, I fell in love with fantasy football and how easy and convenient it is relative to baseball where you have to adjust your lineup daily. And, you know, I just fell in love with the whole concept, how easy it was and just how many of my friends wanted to play relative to how few of them wanted to play fantasy baseball. Yeah, that that's kind of I've had a couple of friends try to get me into fantasy baseball and I was originally a baseball guy as well. And it's just such a long season and it's grinded out. It's the same way I never got into uh, fantasy basketball. And for football, it's just, you know, way easier, way more convenient. I kind of, you know, I'm a little bit jealous of the guys who can keep up with the fantasy baseball and basketball stuff because it's much more of a grind, especially in baseball. When you're looking at prospects from the AAA, double like, et cetera, the farm system and whatnot, it's really it really becomes like an in-depth ordeal. Yeah, exactly. You know, I have a hot take opinion that. Football isn't even that much of a better sport in pure watchability form. It just absolutely dominates in its ability to to be digested. Every week, same time on Sunday, no matter what, everyone can do it. Everyone has time available, relatively speaking. Most people are off from work, and it's so easy to just set your clock, watch the sport, and then go away and just pay attention to the sidelines. Whereas these other sports, it's just it's fatigue of just having too much. You don't know when an NBA game is. They can be on any day of the week. With baseball, they are every day of the week. And people just get fatigued out. It's understandable. Whereas football, you never have that. And it's it's why it's the most consumable product, because it's it's in the right quantity. You can't oversaturate, even though I'm sure NFL owners are desperately trying to oversaturate. Hey, we're starting to see that with the 17-game and eventual 18-game season that's coming up. So that, that'll that be interesting. Um, exactly. So what got you into the NFL? Like, you are a Browns fan, so how did you – like, what was your love for the Browns? Why did you pick the Browns? I mean, I picked the Browns because I was from Cleveland, and essentially all of my friends were very into the Browns before they moved and then after they came back. And I never got into them since I was paying attention to the Indians and how well they were doing. And I just wanted to be part of the crew. Everyone loved the Browns, so I got involved. I loved sports. I was interested in paying attention. And, of course, the Browns stunk, although they did have their playoff season in 2 which at the time was like, all right, well, we got to be better than this. And now we finally have another playoff season 20 years later. 
but it's it's easy to be the lovable loser. It's easy to fall into that mantra of everyone's not as bad as we are. I'm the best fan because no one else has to deal with what I have to put up with. And it's enjoyable, just like, you know, every fan base has their their giant gripe or the reason why they have it the worst. And, you know, the Browns really think they do. And finally, we're kind of getting our act together. Yeah, yeah, that 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 rings a bell with Jet fans, uh, especially for me. Um, so the Browns are doing a lot better. They made it to the AFC divisional game, and I think they, you know, kind of got a little bit on unfair treatment from the refs. And I don't want to dive too much into that, but do you think that they're Super Bowl contenders going forward? I mean, the easiest answer is, is I don't understand how you can say they're not. They clearly played up to snuff with the Chiefs, who I don't believe are that great of a team. I sure do believe Patrick Mahomes is that great. But the rest of that team, they're a beatable team. And then who else is in there, you know, in the AFC? There's the Ravens. Well, Lamar Jackson, everyone knows that he can't pass deep, or they think that at least. I can't even think of anyone else who's really clearly there. Like, some people think the Colts, maybe the Titans. I guess the Patriots could come back. The Dolphins are on their way up. No one is cemented as a great team right now outside of, you could say, the Chiefs, but I just don't buy it. So absolutely, the Browns are a Super Bowl contender. If you call them the Super Bowl favorite, I don't think I could argue hard against that, but that's just kind of the reality. You know, eventually the bad teams become good and even the Browns can do it. And and I think they've done it. Yeah, they really turned the corner, and I think adding Stefanski as the head coach is a great building block for that. Uh, he didn't really get to fully implement a lot of the things that he wanted to do last year. It was kind of a transition period due to COVID and whatnot, with Baker taking a lot of shotgun snaps. So we saw in the second half of the season that he was under center, under, under center a lot more, and he excelled at that. And they, they've got the longevity now in their running core, which is what he you know thrives on in his offensive system. And the way that team is built on the offense and as well on the defense, like the defense is really good and has some really young studs too. Then that's kind of what like the Chiefs are missing. I know, you know, we we both agree Patrick Mahomes is great, but we also agree that the Chiefs other outside of Mahomes, I agree they are, you know, fairly kind of mediocre. I mean Kelsey too and Hill, the other, you know, et cetera. There's a couple of good guys. But like relatively speaking, it's a lot of, you know, just a kind of above average average players. I, I would agree with that. I think the Browns are like the dark horse that shouldn't necessarily be the dark horse coming out of the AFC. Yeah, definitely. You know, the the Browns are kind of that team that, you know, is still quote on the rise. Are they really on the rise? They won a playoff game last year on the road, you know, during a COVID season. While, yes, every team dealt with it, that would be the excuse that the Browns had for being terrible every other year. And this year, they succeeded. They overcame that adversity. So in a season where there's just less of it, you have to assume that one playoff appearance and a win is kind of the expectation, which means only one or two more wins, and you're in the Super Bowl. So... Yeah, they're already kind of there. It's not about will the Browns step up. They've already stepped up. They just need to get to the Super Bowl, which, you know, a lot of teams just need to get to the Super Bowl. They're already there. And, you know, I completely agree. They're they're a great team. I always want to be cautious and, and not get too optimistic with Cleveland because they always have a chance to fail. And as a Jets fan, you totally understand that mindset. But at the same time, I look at the reality and I look at the facts and I go, yeah, this Browns team is, I don't know, the second best Super Bowl favorite 
or the best. That's what they are. So call them what they are. Yep, exactly. And then, you know, kind of the, the center of that whole piece is Baker Mayfield. Mayfield was, you know, a very high potential player coming in. Um, he looked great his rookie season, kind of had a little bit of a slump. And now he's kind of shown that he can he can be great. Do you think that he can become elite this like for the rest of his career or maybe even this year? And how do you how do you project his longevity with the Browns or in the NFL in general? I mean, you know, it's it's hard to look at a player and go becoming elite and then not think of the Joe Flacco memes and go, what does that truly mean? Because when I look at Baker, I see someone like Eli Manning. You know, he won a Super Bowl. He was an excellent playoff quarterback and he was a damn good regular season quarterback. But was he ever the best quarterback in the league? No, he wasn't. Is he a Hall of Famer if you take away his rings? No, he's probably not. But is he elite? I probably think so. He took his team and made them a dominant offensive force for a long time. He had plenty of bumps in the road, but overall, his body of work was excellent. And I think that's what Baker is. He appears to be, as long as the Browns decide to pay him, our quarterback for a very long time. And he's absolutely a quarterback capable of winning multiple Super Bowls. He's not a quarterback who's going to just guide you there overnight like a Patrick Mahomes. But that doesn't mean he's not a very, very good one. Uh, I'm all in on the fact that he's our guy because every other quarterback we ever had has been atrocious. And he clearly is a guy who knows how to not mess up badly when he's playing bad, if that makes sense. He'll have his turnovers. He'll have rough games. Defenses will get to him. But he also doesn't have that happen routinely over and over again. That's, to me, kind of what an elite quarterback is. He doesn't go into a rut. He might have a bad game, but he'll come out of that. Yeah, that's actually a great comparison. I haven't actually heard that anybody compare Baker to Eli, but that's pretty astute in the way that they play. Not, not like Maybe not throwing motion, et cetera. But like when you get down to just the dynamics of football, they're able to like they're kind of the same thing. Never going to be the greatest, but they are still great and they can get the job done. And if the rest of the team around them is built accordingly, then there's no reason why that team shouldn't be uh, a Super Bowl contender or winner. And, you know, talking about building around the team accordingly, you guys got Odell Beckham and he was he's kind of like your star receiver, but he's had some injury trouble this offseason, he looks healthy. He's He seems to be healthy. And when he was healthy in the past, he was uh, a, a primary target for Baker Mayfield, obviously. How do you see that playing out? Do you think he can play the full 17? And do how do you think the rest of the wide receiver room plays out? Uh, I mean, I think it's it's basically in, in every injury situation, it's asinine to go, oh, he's an injury risk. Like, you look at Beckham, and yeah. He's got some ticky-tacky. He's got some soft tissue issues. He's missed a few games. His rookie year, he missed four. His 2017 season, he obviously had a huge injury and barely played. Last year, after seven games, he tore his ACL. But, you know, that's over the course of seven seasons. That's only three seasons with real significant injuries. That's a 50-50 shot, and that's assuming that he's a, quote, injury-prone guy, and these aren't just things that happen to chance. So do I think he can come back and be another 1,000-yard receiver like he was the previous two seasons? Yeah, I think he can. I don't really see why he wouldn't. We're in the age of modern medicine where people can come back and be amazing for year after year. Just look at Tom Brady. So do I think 29-year-old Odell Beckham Jr. can succeed? Absolutely I do. And when you look at the rest of that wide receiver room, does anyone light the world on fire? No. 
I don't think that Jarvis Landry is a guy that people go, wow, this guy is going to be an absolute star. But he's also the kind of guy who's usually on a Super Bowl winning team, just someone who gets receptions, converts first downs, is a just very nice player, even though on a fantasy squad, he's going to be very mediocre. And, you know, as a Browns fan, I'm very happy with that. I like what the wide receiver room is. I don't need them to be insanely flashy, or I don't need to have them get 4,000 yards combined throughout everyone. Just give me wins. That's what I want. And I think this wide receiver group can get it done. Yeah, I agree. I always like to say that it's easier to scheme. Like if you have one great wide receiver as a coach, it's easier to scheme, uh, you know, other like subpar players open and then it is to have to completely use a different scheme. And with that, like you guys have Jarvis Landry, and I agree with your points made there, and that Landry is just kind of like your solid guy. He's not like, I agree with about the mediocre fantasy aspect as well. His, his propositions aren't necessarily the greatest, but as an NFL team, like, and as a fan, that's what you want. Uh, and you guys drafted Schwartz this season. Do you have any hope that he can be anything? I heard he's like a, a good speeder, burner type of guy. Could he be like your downfield, downfield Deshaun uh, Jackson type of player? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, I think he could. When you look at the rest of that roster, that's exactly what this team needs. They have probably the best running back duo in the football. They've got an offensive line that, despite not being highly rated going into last year, was insanely good. They've got a tight end core that's insanely deep. And they've got Beckham and Landry. The one thing they don't have is that deep threat. So if he can run down the field and be our Mike Wallace, be our Jacoby Jones, be just someone who can occasionally catch the ball downfield, that's going to have a ton of value just by stretching the field. You know, you look at a guy like Bill Belichick. What does he desperately search for all the time? Wide receivers who can stretch the field. So if Schwartz can do it, he's going to be a huge part of this team. And while I'm not an expert at talent evaluator, I don't look at his college film and know whether or not he can separate in the NFL or not, but I know he'll have the opportunity. So that's all I care about. Right, exactly. And that'll be all the help you guys can get in the AFC North, which is kind of, I would say that it's the hardest division, um, at least in the AFC uh, by far. You got the Baltimore Ravens, which are perennial playoff team, Uh, the Steelers, which basically are as well, and they all play for that championship usually or at least make it to the game if somebody else is a knocked out and then the Browns are on their up and up and then the Bengals I mean I still think they're going to be bad but at least the offense probably might be better um who do you think comes out on top of that division you know uh again my brain says the Browns but my heart says not the Browns because my heart's broken and I'm expecting (laughs) horrible bad things to happen the reality is, is I think the Browns are a 13-win team. You know, maybe a 12-win team, but we do have that extra game, so 13's likely that number. You give them 13 and four, that just kind of makes sense. That you know, they're the favorite. Yeah, the Ravens are going to probably be right on their heels, but I think the Ravens have a lot more question marks on the defensive side of the ball that could wreak their heads early and you know really put them into a hole to start. Whereas I don't see that happening with the Browns. I also think the Steelers are just kind of finally having age catch up with them. It finally has happened after seemingly 10 years. And like you said, the Bengals are a team that's going to have a solid offense and a horrendous defense, and they're going to just be in shootouts all the time. And they'll win a few of those shootouts, but for the most part, they'll lose. 
And, and I definitely think the Browns are the team that should be on top. It's it's a crazy statement to say, but it's also true. Uh, I actually tend to agree with you. I think we're kind of seeing defenses, especially like when it gets got to the playoffs, defenses are able to scheme around the Ravens as well and be able to stop them. And they had a hard time adjusting. I think that's why we saw them bring in the wide receivers that they did to try to change that up. But if the narrative on Lamar ends up being true, can you really say that anything will really change? Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Greg Roman uh, tried to have the offense be more pass oriented in the first half of the season i may be misremembering that but it might have been later on but i'm I'm pretty sure it was in the first half and that's when the team kind of got out of the gate slow and it wasn't really until they established a run much more often with lamar and using the that as more of a focal point like they did in the previous success it's how they got success in the regular season but in the playoffs it was that was shut down pretty pretty uh handily so i'm i'm I don't think I think they'll be a great regular season team, but I don't think that they'll be better than the Browns either, just because that they do have more shortcomings. Baker may not be the type of quarterback that Lamar is, but the rest of the team, he doesn't have to be in order for that team to do well. Do do you think that do you think the quarterback or the lack of changing scheme in the Ravens is what's holding them back from being true like competitors with you guys? Yeah, you know, uh, I don't think it's necessarily that they're not true competitors, because I think they could be considered a 1B to the Browns 1A. But I do agree with what you're saying in the sense that they can't adjust. If someone's shutting down the run game and they need to go pass heavy because that defense has a dominant day, they're not a team that's going to adjust well. They're not going to be able to just fire off deep balls, take advantage of a safety's playing off the ball, take advantage of the fact that they're behind and they can just pick up yardage. That's not their forte. The Browns could do that. If the Browns need to get into a shootout, they've got Beckham and Landry. They can try and pass the ball, and they can potentially succeed at that, even though it's not their forte in the run game is. And, and that's kind of what I see is the difference. They both have excellent rushing teams, but the Browns are able to adjust when necessary, and the Ravens will struggle in that category, and that's really what kind of separates them. On the defensive side of the ball, the Browns also seem to be more of a veteran and solid presence team, which kind of seems crazy because their secondary is so young. But also, it seems like the Browns are now the team where they just have these guys and they're going to come in and they're just going to produce even if they're not playing all the time. And that's been the M.O. of the Ravens and the Steelers for decades to just always have the next guy up. Well, now it seems like that's kind of the Browns' turn and and I'm excited for that, and it's weird to see the roles reversed, but that's kind of how it feels. Yeah, it, it's fun when, you know, David becomes Goliath, and uh, I, I agree with your points. I think I think the passing of the torch is happening in the AFC North, and we're going to see the Browns and maybe even the Bengals rise out on that. So I'm going to touch up on fantasy football. You are the commissioner of our contract league. Now, what made you decide to get into that? For those who don't know the contract league, it, it's – a lot of it is run, uh, like the draft and whatnot, is run through the sheets. Uh, I'll, I'll let you explain more of that. But it's just, as a commissioner, it's got to be a grueling task. So what made you decide to do that and, t- and uh, give the listeners a brief uh, description of what exactly the contract league is? Yeah, well, you know, the, the contract dynasty league, my, my reasoning for really kind of getting on Twitter and getting involved and just kind of creating a mildly loud voice is the fact that I really thought that this is the peak of fantasy football. 
I know that there are many fantasy football players out there like we touched on earlier. It's the number one fantasy sport. And I think a lot of people, they go and they get to Dynasty and they love it. But there's really not that many ways to run your team in Dynasty, in my opinion. You're either all in right now and don't have anything for the future. You're just sitting there trying to have a conveyor belt of talent or you're all in on the rebuild. There's no real other options. Those are your three things, and that's what you do. And compared to a redraft where everyone's trying to win immediately, it seems like there's a lot. And then when you add into Debbie and you have people who are drafting these college players and seeing how they're going to come across in the future in the NFL, well, that's real nice, but they're also just prospects. They're not actually, like, netting your team wins or losses today. You're just racking up future value. And a contract dynasty... The way the league is set up, the way it's done, there are so many options and ways to run your team that there's no set strategy. You don't have to build a team through the draft. You can never draft anyone and succeed. You can also only draft people and succeed. It's a it's an ecosystem, as I like to say, where you can do anything, and there are many strategies versus ecosystems where there just really aren't that many strategies. And that's what really made me create the contract league. I run my home league for the past 10 years. I was the commissioner of it originally, and it's the same type of league. It's a contract league. This one that I just created now that you're in, it's kind of what I always wanted that league to evolve in, which it didn't necessarily go. When that league was created, we did half point PPR, and that was considered very outside the box. Now, our league, we have a super flex. There's relegation. There's a lot more just little nuances that I wanted to add and just test out. And I was very willing to put in the time as commissioner because there is time because I just wanted to get the rewards of seeing how the ecosystem would work. Yeah, it's probably my favorite league right now um, because of all the nuance, all the little loopholes and things to do, really, that like you're building a team. As you mentioned, you can build it any other way, like any way you want to. Uh, some people, you know, when we finished our inaugural blind auction draft, some people didn't have like starter positions filled or bench positions filled, etc. And you were able to do that through another, again, like a blind uh, waiver pickup, which I thought was pretty, pretty cool. And you got to see people's strategies and how they were going to go about things. And then it's it's just kind of always... I like the word used as the ecosystem because it would be constantly evolving. And that's the problem with dynasty leagues, like regular dynasty leagues now. And I, I agree with your point is you're really only going three types of ways. You can't, you can't also like, you can't play for the future, but also be in a win now mode in the same type of way as you kind of could in this league with all the ways that you can go about it. The way the contracts are set up, it's like the closest thing to like, so to speak, running your running an NFL team as like a GM. And I think that's like that's pretty, pretty cool as a function of playing a game. You're 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 getting more interaction out of it. Could you tell people about the the draft process? Because a lot of people are used to blind auctions and whatnot, but ours had a little bit of a different rule set. Could you get into that a little? Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, just before I hit on that, I do want to say the way this auction worked is the exact way I wanted it to work in the sense that everyone knows what a fantasy football auction is. Even if you've never done a fantasy football auction yourself, you understand the concept. You go in, you have X amount of dollars, and you come out with the players that you bid the most on and no one else outbid you. It's a very straightforward process. 
and you kind of know what to do. And everyone bids each other up until slowly you get to the top. And once you're at the top, someone wins. It's a not very nuanced process, but it's a process where everyone has access to all players at all times. And it doesn't come down to your draft slot. So it's better than a snake draft. Well, my draft takes one step on top of that. So it's a blind auction where everyone submits a bid on a group of six players that are just continually rolling. So, for instance, the first six players are nominated, whoever they may be. Everyone can bid whatever they want on them. So you can bid your maximum amount of value, which would be on a contract up to five years, or you can bid a minimum amount of value on a contract for one year at the lowest whole dollar amount, which is $1. Well, after that, you have 12 people who could potentially bid, and of those 12 potential bidders, a top six get to go to a rebid phase. And in that rebid phase, there's one more round of bidding, and the highest bid wins. Except the highest bid doesn't win with the bid they made. They win with the bid of the second place bidder. So say I really wanted Patrick Mahomes. I was destined to have him on my team. I could have bid all of my cap and made sure unequivocally I got him. Because if I bid all of my cap for him, no one can outbid me. It's all of the cap. It's the first bid. No one has more than me. But I get him at the second place contract. And someone could have offered him a one-year contract at an extremely high rate. And that would screw my whole draft system because I don't have any more cap in the current year to pay any players. It's basically a free-for-all and whatever you want, you can go get them. But in my mind, the players have a little bit of a say. And that say is whatever comes out of that second contract. You get them at a little bit lower of a discounted price, but you also don't get to determine exactly how long you have them and exactly how that money's distributed. The player has that say, or in this case, it's really the other GMs. And it's just a whole nother way of thinking. You know, in this draft, lots of people did what many people do in auctions drafts, which is they bid on their stars early, and then they're like, all right, at the back half of the draft, I'm just going to fill out my roster. And a lot of people realize it's not that smart to fill out your roster because contracts are contracts, and you have a finite amount of cap, and you need to keep that cap for in-season transactions. So the average contract Dynasty League team looks a lot different from a regular Dynasty League team because a roster spot doesn't hold the same type of value. And I'm going off on many tangents because the whole league is set up this way. The auction's slightly different. The contracts are slightly different. The rosters are slightly different. The value of everything is just skewed a little bit. And you have to figure it out, and you have to understand, oh, really? Like, in our draft, we had multiple people trade their draft nominations Essentially, draft pick nominations were being traded, and they were being traded for just draft picks, future draft picks. And anyone coming from a regular dynasty league, they would look at that and they would go, why would I trade a future draft pick for a nomination? That seems crazy and not worth it. I can just get the guy off of free agents. Why do I want to nominate him? Well, in this league, the nomination process does matter, and those future draft picks have less stock because you might only redshirt them and they might not ever see a start on your roster because you don't have them eternally for forever. It's not accumulate late round picks, try and play the lottery. And if you win the lottery, you have this huge giant reward. It's accumulate late round picks and you want to have current immediate production because if they're good in two or three years, they're also free agents in two or three years. So it's just recalibrating what everyone thinks the value is of everything. You know, to to have one last comment, 
in my dynasty league last year, the original contract dynasty, I was offered Christian McCaffrey before he was injured for James Robinson in week two. I declined it without a second thought to keep my James Robinson and the entire rest of the league outright agreed with me. In order for me to acquire Chris McCafferty, I would have had to cut and create about $40 worth of cap. I also would have had to pay free agent Christian McCaffrey next year. And it just would have made no sense, whereas I had James Robinson on a $1 per year contract for the next five years. It totally shuffles up what the value of a player is outside of just what you think their immediate production will be. I never thought that James Robinson would ever be as good as Christian McCaffrey, and I'm sure no one would agree that he ever should be that good, but I did think that his long-term value and his overall value to my roster meant more than Christian McCaffrey, and it's just like the real NFL GMs do. Yeah, they might want to go and sign this excellent free agent, but they don't have cap, so he doesn't have that value. They might want to trade for this guy, but he has a huge cap hat, so he doesn't have value, and it's... It's creating a system that's unique only to your league, only with your contracts, and you have so much more depth than any other league out there. And that's just really all I can say is after this long diatribe, it's your own unique league. No other league is like this. No, I, I completely agree. And that's the funny thing, too, when you're talking about the construct of a team, is that when me and the guy, rest of the guys in that league are discussing trades and, you know, somebody's like, hey, you interested in this guy? Some like the, either me or the person I'm asking will be like, uh, I like him, but I can't have him at that price. So in order like because in order to inquire that player as you said you'd have to cut like cut down the cap and get rid of guys just to fit that one player and it can kind of destroy the integrity of the team that you currently have and during the draft it was an or yeah during the initial draft it was an interesting process during with the nominees ended ending up being so valuable um in the grand scheme while people were still getting their starters because that was important i think that the coolest thing for me on that was kind of seeing the way that people valued certain guys at the beginning of the draft um because it was you got the you got the contract on the second highest bid so you could kind of see where other people were on their player how often did it occur that multiple guys would place the same type of uh contract on a player was it was it a common occurrence it was extremely common. I'd say there were probably a dozen times throughout the entire draft that two people bid the exact same dollar amount for the exact same year length, and the tiebreaker just went to whoever submitted the bid first. And I expected that to happen maybe once or twice during the entire draft, and really to happen towards the back end of the draft when people were bidding $1 for one year on people. And it happened early and often, and I was shocked. There were Three-digit dollar bids where two people tied and one person won just because of the tiebreaker. And it's it's just the perfect draft in my mind because it's chaos and you can't control it all. But you can control whoever makes it on your team, but you can't control exactly how. And that's the perfect type of fantasy football. It's one where you have to make trade-offs. You have to make tough decisions. For me personally, my least favorite leagues are the insanely deep leagues where there's too many managers and every single player on a roster and on a practice squad is on a roster because that's not fantasy football. That's just a fantasy football draft and then trying to trade. You can't make ads in the season. You can't shuffle up and 
try something new because you're stuck with what you drafted. And in this league, it's not that case at all. You can cut people, but there's a repercussion for that cut. And are you okay with that? Well, you can be. Did you set yourself up? You can, but maybe you didn't. And that's all this league is. Plus, if you want more cap, just go and trade for it. Trade a first-round pick. You can just get straight cap, and you can use that to sign somebody. It's it's just an excellent way of viewing things beyond just, I like this guy. I think he's better than this other guy. That's why I'm taking him. Yeah, I think the possibilities are endless, and that's what kind of made it. That league, the draft, was probably the most fun and interactive that I've ever been a part of. And I echo your sentiments on the large uh, dynasty, the large team rosters in certain dynasty leagues. And my all-22 league where I have the offense, 11 offense, 11 IDP, I keep no taxi squads. And I think the bench may be eight people. It's pretty dang short in comparison. And I've had people ask me, hey, can you increase the bench size? And I'm like, no, because of what exactly you said. It's you're not really playing fantasy football. You can't make moves. There's no there's no unpredictability. It's like everybody's already on a team. And then that just becomes boring to me. And, you know, drafts can initial drafts can be so crazy, especially when they happen so early in the offseason. And I, I, I just completely agree with that with that sentiment. That's why I loved your your idea when you when you asked me to join. I was pretty hyped because I was like, it's new. And then everything that you showed me. And then there's a for those who don't know, there's a Google Sheets that have uh, basically the laws of the bylaws bylaws of the league. And it's a very intricate and well done and well thought out process. So I got to give you kudos to that. And I hope that anybody listening, it gives them a reason to do a dynasty contract league because it is so much different than your normal dynasty league. And it's so much more fun. In my opinion, it gives you much more flexibility. Um, yeah. I didn't and, want- and, Oh, I was just going to say, if you're just an average person out there and you think maybe, Oh, you know, this is a little bit too much. I'm not this deep in the weeds. When you have a contract dynasty league, you create so much more of an ecosystem for you and your friends in that week. It's unique to you. And it makes the league so much more fun. It's not purely what the statistical output is of your roster. It's how you got there. There's a lot of fun in actually getting there versus just clicking add and clicking drop. It's If there's one thing I can harp on someone who's considering this, if you've got guys who like football and gals who like football and just like the sport and like management, this is the league for you. Yeah, I agree. And I hope that it ends up uh, coming to fruition. I think more people should be playing these type of leagues. Now, I want to get back more into some basic fantasy football. Rookie fever is obviously comes every offseason after the draft, before the draft, and most notably on the quarterbacks. So we'll ignore the quarterbacks. And what rookie do you believe will have the most success in their inaugural season? I mean... It seems like it's such an easy question, but it's actually a super hard question because what do you define as success? Because if you're saying who has the most points, I'm going to probably just take Najee Harris. I think he's got that volume locked up. He's going to succeed, and I think he'll do well enough. I certainly don't think he's going to just flop and be atrocious and not playable. But do I think he's going to meet his ADP? No, I think he's going to have a lot of a lot of buyers disappointed, both from a long-term standpoint and a short-term standpoint. I think the same thing with Kyle Pitts. 
I think the same thing with Jalen Waddle. I think the same thing with Travis Etienne, with Javante Williams, with Rondale Moore, with Rashad Bateman. I'm naming all of the rookies. The only person I'm not is Jamar Chase, and it's by default. I think he will probably get you a solid return and meet your expectations. I don't think he'll exceed them, but you'll come away going, that's about what I wanted from him. And that's good enough for me when it comes to rookie hype. Every season, people just overhype all of the rookies. I mean, look at last year. Look at Jonathan Taylor and Cam Akers. Halfway through the season, people were calling them busts because they weren't producing. Why? Because it takes rookies a little bit of time. (laughs) There are costs that you don't just throw to the wolves right away. You want to have that cost appreciate in value, not immediately depreciate. And I think just a lot of fantasy football players, they see youth, they see age, they see college production, and they they get blinded by the light. I agree, man. I've done a lot of research, well, specifically with my wide receiver lookups, trying to go for a zero wide receiver type practices. It's, it's on the new antithesis for the zero RB, but both are useless, by the way, just for anybody trying them. They're both useless. But young wide receivers in general and like just young players in general as you say like they take time there's a reason they call like the soft the like the you always expect a second year bump in a wide receiver it's because the rookie year it takes time to adjust the same way running backs slowly get implemented in the rookie year for like the first half of the season most of them are barely playing 50 percent, even if they are high draft picks and with tight ends we both know how you know, essentially useless for fantasy football rookie tight ends can be um, despite hype. So uh, it's always it's always weird to me when people do that and get hyped up like it makes sense because it's it's the brand new thing. But then you get to a point where you said, like, they're never going to live up to expectations. We saw with CEH last year where people were taking him number one, like overall in a lot of one quarterback leagues, which was just bizarre and like over established players and taking them much earlier than they should we see it every year we see it this year too and it's not the best strategy if you're trying to win now and then it's an easy like out i I think it's an easy out for people who go all in on that rookie hype and then once they do bad they have something to blame when their failures you know come to roost yeah you know completely and and i do see one correlation that makes me sound like the most old curmudgeon boomer But I feel like lots of young people, they like young talent. You saw this guy. You saw him go from his freshman season at Florida all the way to his senior season. You saw him go from not playing that much to being a superstar. And you think that transition happens in the NFL, and it just doesn't. And you see a guy like Kyle Pitts, and you go, he's built differently. He's not like any other tight end before. And you know what? You're right. He's going to be probably the best tight end of this past decade in terms of just hype, not in terms of on-field performance necessarily, but in terms of hype. And the reality is, is there were guys who were Kyle Pitts before Kyle Pitts. I'm old enough to remember Vernon Davis. I'm old enough to remember Kellen Winslow. Neither one of them stunk. They weren't bad. They just weren't insanely better than all of the other people in the NFL. That's just not how it works. People aren't just that much better than whoever's the second best. It's just, it's insanely rare. And when that does happen, in the case of a guy like Travis Kelsey, it happens after five years in the league. It doesn't happen overnight. And even though the rookies are getting all the hype and, you know, the elite guys always get their hype too. 
But what, what are three players that you think aren't being talked about enough for this upcoming season for redraft leagues? Yeah, you know, the, the first one I'm going to hit on, I feel like, is kind of getting talked about, but he's still not getting talked about enough, and he's not getting talked about in the right context necessarily, and that's Melvin Gordon. You know, people look at him, they see Javante Williams, and they go, ah, just a matter of time. And in theory, time will elapse, and eventually Melvin Gordon will age out, Javante Williams will get more carries, he will see an uptick, and they will be right. But how much time is the question. And I don't think that's happening this year. I don't think Melvin Gordon is just going to roll over and get released because his contract situation certainly doesn't say that. And his skill, his entire career certainly doesn't say he's just finished at this point. He's always produced when he's on the field. His issues have been injuries and he's going to be on that field. And Javante Williams is going to step into that Philip Lindsay role. He's not going to just barrel through Melvin Gordon and, you know, the whole world with their rookie hype, they think that that's what's going to happen. So I just see Melvin Gordon as just excellent value. Sure, come week 15 and 16, he might not be a guy you want to start because finally Javante has taken that lead role. But you know what he did do? He got you to the playoffs. He got you there. And then you can have a young guy on your bench ready to go in a redraft. You don't have to have that young guy on your bench all season not producing and then producing in the last few weeks of the season when you're already out of the playoffs, take Melvin Gordon and worry about the rest of the future later. Cause if he hits all season, great. And if he doesn't, well, then you can make a move. You don't have to make that move week one and just sit and wait. There'll be guys who come up. There'll be another Mike Davis. There'll be another James Conner who shows up out of nowhere. It always happens and it'll happen again this year. So just take the production while you know it's there. Yeah, I, it hurts my heart to hear that because Melvin Gordon has done me so wrong in the past. But I, I have to concede that that is the likely scenario, um, regardless of how much they do like Javante and they did trade up to get him. But the facts remain. I'm a big guy where money talks. I know we've had our disagreements on uh, Tarek, Tariq Cohen and uh, the David <laughs> Montgomery situation. But uh, I, I kind of lean the same way with Melvin because he is getting paid and he is the guy there and he will produce while he's in that role and who knows how long that role will be. I think it will be at minimum six games um, at least at minimum. So during that six weeks at minimum, you know, he's going to put up points like you said. So that does hurt my heart, but I, I would have to agree with that one. And uh, who, who, who else did you have on the block for that list? Yeah, you know, my, my second name, it's Amari Cooper. It's a name where everyone goes, yeah, I, I know who Amari Cooper is. He's a pretty good wide receiver. <laughs> and no one seems to really talk about him not being just a pretty good wide receiver, but being a wide receiver who's tied to what I think will be the best offense in football, a wide receiver who's not old by any means. He's only 27. And when you look at the wide receivers around him or the guys who are clearly better than him in theory – You've got guys like Stefan Diggs, who I'll take over Amari Cooper, but Diggs is a year older than him. So if you're looking in a dynasty and you're having your draft now, you can factor that in a little bit. And really, Diggs' price is a lot higher than Amari Cooper's. Then you look at a guy like Calvin Ridley and Tyreek Hill. Those are both guys who I think are consensus ahead of Amari Cooper. But to me, it's not by that much. And they're all the same age. It's not like Amari Cooper's older than those guys. They're the same age. And Amari Cooper's tied to the best offense. Sure, Tyreek's tied to Mahomes, and Ridley's tied to 
the Falcons and their pass-happy offense, everything's good between these guys. But the price at the draft table between a Tyreek and a Ridley down to a Cooper is a discrepancy that I'll definitely take. And I just really don't understand why Cooper's kind of fallen to the wayside and everyone's going, this is C.D. Lamb's team. He's the star. And it's like, nah, it's still Amari Cooper's team. It's not that I don't believe in C.D. Lamb. I just believe in Amari. I, I believe in Amari Cooper, too. And I think it's unfair to him that, you know, C.D. was picked, but Cooper's an animal, man. And people forget how long he was in the league for. He's a very great route technician. He's amazing. And I think that gets kind of undervalued because he doesn't put up the most spectacular uh, fantasy points, maybe. Um, but I think the Dallas offense is going to be fantastic as well. And Amari Cooper is still their number one guy until, you know, we see otherwise. So it's safe to say that he's going to be fed a good amount of volume and his ADP is much lower than guys who he has who he has similar value with. So I'm on all I'm all on board with that, too. I have Cooper in I think almost exactly half of my dynasty leagues. And it's because of his value right now. Yeah, I mean, he has 5,000-yard seasons going into his age 27 season, and people just act like this guy is just not that good. And I'm just going, what are you talking about? He's insanely good. If you said Amari Cooper's a top-10 dynasty asset, most people would laugh you out of the room. And I would go, I don't think I have him that high. I think 12 makes sense, but... I'm not going to argue with that. He just produces, and he's not flashy, and his ceiling isn't wide out number one because of what's going on in Dallas. But also, you could say the same thing for C.D. Lamb, and everyone has him ahead of Cooper. And I'm just, I scratch my head at the massive infatuation with youth because sometimes you can look at another guy who's not even old, who's there, and go, I don't like him just because he's existed longer. It's just perplexing. Yeah, that's it, it is funny because especially when it comes to wide receivers, especially right, because Cooper's in that age right now where some of some of the best wide receivers have their best years, you know, like 26 through 29. They tend to have some of the greatest years of their career. And it's funny seeing people, you know, say that and then just forgetting how young he really is and being like, well, he's he's a little too old. But no, nah, I, I, I completely get that. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm behind you. And uh, who is the final guy that you think isn't being talked about enough this year? Yeah, you know, the the final guy for me is a guy who I think everyone has kind of had the same type of Amari Cooper fatigue with. He's also 27. It's Evan Ingram. He's a tight end who just is a very solid tight end who consistently has gotten hurt two of the past three years. But outside of that, he's produced very well. His tight end, his touchdown numbers have been atrocious. He only has 13 on his career across 50 games, and people go, well, he just doesn't score. And I think anyone who understands the odds and averages goes, there aren't players who actually just don't know how to score touchdowns. It's schematics. It's how the plays are drawn up. It's how things happen. And he's just had some unlucky variants when it comes to touchdowns. And if I know anything about statistics, if you've had unlucky variants, the odds of your luck variants don't go up. But it sure seems like he has a high touchdown season coming. And he's very good. He's in his age 27 season. They brought in more weapons for those Giants. Daniel Jones certainly isn't the world's greatest passer of all time. So he's certainly going to get plenty of underneath looks. 
and everyone's selling him because they're basically tired of him, him not being Travis Kelsey. And I will just gladly take him at his price. I know the, the world says that it's basically the top five tight ends and then everyone else is junk and there is no middle tier. And I think Evan Ingram is clearly in that middle tier and I will buy him at his price 10 times out of 10. I, I just, again, I, I don't understand why these people who enter these prime years who haven't had the prime season yet are being told, oh, well, they're not going to be a prime superstar. And it's like, well, you thought they'd be a superstar the first four years of their career. Why do you suddenly think they won't be now? Just because it hasn't happened yet? Well, people age at different rates. There's not a linear age curve that everyone just always follows. Things happen differently. And, you know, for Evan Ingram, I think things could be very good for him in 2020. And, and I like him a lot. I, I'm with you there as well. So one thing I was looking at before, because I've had some discussions about Ingram in the past, and it was, you know, his high target share. Like, he, the guy gets targets, and he's not, like, that's not going away. Who did they bring in? Kyle Rudolph? Okay. Is Rudolph supposed to be some sort of legitimate competition for Ingram? I don't think so. Uh, I think he's more of a safety valve if Ingram was to go down again, and that's, you know, the contingency plan. Uh, but, you know, Ingram is going to be the guy. And in that offense where we're seeing already got, uh, Kenny Galladay might have, you know, a lingering hammy issue. Who knows? Tony might have, you know, his rookie cur- rookie slump. And then Sterling Shepard, Golden Tate, and Darius Slayton, they don't necessarily wow you. And then the big target in the red zone then becomes Evan Ingram anyway. And as you said, with his touchdown variance, yeah, you're right. As you said, his, you know, percentages don't get any better. But, you know, for the gamers out there, his RNG is about to hit, you know, um, he's 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 supposed to like it's it's coming. And whether it's not whether or not it's this year, who knows? But do you see anybody that could even take away his uh, massive target volume in this offense, even with the addition of Galladay? I mean, in theory, Galladay could just become this beast that no one else thinks he truly is and just be, you know, uh, the sun to the rest of the team's solar system and just eat up those targets. But do I think that's a likely scenario? No. Could Tony just come out and steal the show from day one and just be the next Odell Beckham Jr.? I mean, it's not impossible. It could happen, but is that a likely scenario? No. You know, the these things that, in theory, could happen, could happen to anyone anywhere. Could all of a sudden Demarcus Robinson finally figure it out and be a stud along with Miko Hardman and Travis Kelsey loses targets because of aging? Like, yeah, it could happen. It could. But betting on that to happen would not be a very smart play, and Betting on Evan Ingram to just lose all of this volume to Kenny Galladay and Kadarius Tony when that's just not the likely play. It's just not what should be in the cards. So even if he does and he loses some of that those catches, he should see the TD variants go in his favor, and you still are getting a very solid tight end. So I think that he's just undervalued because he's disappointed too many people, and it's kind of Joe Mixon syndrome where people go, oh, this guy's disappointed me too many times. He's not good. And it's like, well, you know, variance happens. And when variance happens, sometimes good things happen and sometimes bad things happen. And in the sample size of an NFL career, bad things happen a few times. You just go, this guy sucks. 
when in reality it's just bad variants. It happens. That actually is a great segue to the, the final thing I want to discuss with you is that what two players do you believe are being overhyped this year that are going to let people down that will have that bad variance? Yeah, I mean, you know, my initial thought process is to just dive right in and talk about every single rookie. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I've done that, I think, on every podcast I've ever been on. So I'm going to go in a different direction. The first person I'm going to say is Josh Allen. I've been a Josh Allen believer since he got in the NFL. I've been on his bandwagon, and I don't have the receipts to prove it because I wasn't on Twitter. But I'll tell you one thing. He's not going to produce what he did last year. He's not just going to get any better or even do anything mildly close to what he did last year. If you give him the exact same passing numbers and you cut his rushing touchdowns in half, he goes from being the QB1 to the QB9. That's a monumental drop. Yeah. And all you're doing is adjusting rushing touchdown variants. You're not even adjusting for the fact that maybe the Bills will attempt to run the ball with running backs outside of the red zone. You're just doing all sorts of adjustments for just standard touchdown variants that we all know exists. So I don't believe at all that Josh Allen is this QB1 forever. I think he's very much had his career season, and he's a very good NFL quarterback who works excellent in Buffalo's scheme. But as a fantasy QB, nowhere close to his ADP is where he should be going. You just saw the career year. Don't pay for the career year. Pay for the expected year. He's going to be good, but he's not going to be that good. So just just pump the brakes. I know no one wants to because all the haters have existed for so long, and he just keeps having his accuracy get better at literally historic levels, but it's not going to continue to get better. It's just not. And if it does, he continues to be an outlier, but buying that outlier is a bad decision. So I'm out there. My second guy who I'm going to – oh, go ahead. If I could, if I could touch on that, uh, my bad for the interruption. Uh, oh no! But I, that's one person that I've been thinking about a lot. That is going to come down to a regression. I actually completely agree, and I too, I don't have the receipts for it. But on Gang Green Nation, I had Josh Allen actually as my quarterback one in that class, so I was super high on him. But like looking at the projections I was going to do this year for the Bills, I got the Josh Allen, and I saw the the rushing touchdowns, and I was like. Okay, that's just not going to happen again. And I didn't know that the the, the discre- discrepancy would, would drop him from the quarterback one to the quarterback nine. That's insane. And plus, we're hearing that, you know, they're going to be less likely to utilize him in those running situations because of the concussion he received and the fact that they want to protect their asset. So I think that's a, a fantastic regression candidate that nobody's really talking about and the way like the way you described it is how you play dynasty you don't pay for the career year you just don't and i think that's how you lose i think that was very that was an astute point and a great player and uh great first player um and who, who was your second yeah and uh before i go to my second i do just want to clarify something slightly which should be obvious but to people out there who don't when you go and you look and you only take away rushing touchdowns he isn't going to decrease the QB9. You have to take away rushing and receiving touchdowns because he caught a pass for a touchdown. I decided okay. to lump that in together. So technically, yeah. he won't drop all the way to nine, just losing rushing. But you understand that picture. Now, yeah. for the second guy on my list, it's Travis Kelsey. I know he's the world's greatest tight end of all time. And I actually agree with that statement. I think he's going to go down 
in history as the best tight end in the history of football. So I agree with that statement. What I don't agree with is Travis Kelsey as this ageless wonder who literally cannot regress. He's entering his age 32 season. And look at the greatest tight ends before Travis Kelsey and look at what they've done in their age 32 seasons and beyond. It's not good. It's just not good. And I understand, oh, well, it's 2021. Passing offenses are totally different. You can't go back and look at Sterling Sharp It's or Shannon Sharp. It's a totally different world. And I agree with that. So look at Tony Gonzalez. Look at Jason Witten. Look at Dallas Clark. Look at Antonio Gates. Look at what all of the great tight ends we've seen most recently have done. And, okay, you want to knock and say, well, passing offense is still a little bit better now than it was then. Still look at their numbers compared to the league average. They don't age well. They still exist. They don't just retire because they're elite performers. But Travis Kelsey isn't just going to be this 1,500-yard monster. And I think that there's just so much concern with what could happen there and could happen with that Chiefs offense. And, frankly, that Chiefs offense could be bad. And I think no one is saying that because Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes. But his weapons are not good. And I know that no one wants to hear someone talk bad about Kansas City, but I'll do it because I've seen dynasties come and dynasties go, and teams just don't stay on top for eternity. We all remember the Patriots with Randy Moss and Tom Brady and how great they were. Well, they didn't stay up there forever. We all remember every other great offense, the greatest show on turf, the Rams. Every offense eventually falls, and the Chiefs have been good for a little while now. I'm not saying Patrick Mahomes falls, because he shouldn't, but that offense could, and I think it will, and I think Travis Kelsey is just not going to produce like you want him to. He's going to have a lot of unhappy owners, and he's not going to be that league winner this year like he was last year. He just had his best year last year, too, correct? That is correct, and people seem to think, oh, well, last year he was bad, he was great, so this year he'll be even better. And I just put my hands in my face and I go, you don't understand how things work. Uh, I'm with you on that as well. A lot of people, I mean, correctly so, they're talking about Derrick Henry being a guy who eventually has to regress to the age, but a lot of people are forgetting about Travis Kelsey. And you kind of hit on the points of the, you have to look at previous production of their previous history of tight ends and their production going into these uh, like mid 30 year old years and it just starts to go down and he had his best year, but that's kind of the same thing we're talking about with Josh Allen, right? Is he just had his best year. You don't pay for that. Like you you don't pay for something that just happened. You have to pay for what can potentially happen going forward. And I think Kelsey is a strong candidate for that. And he just has so many miles on his belt too. Like, okay, he sat out, I believe he sat out his rookie season or wasn't really in any games. But tight ends do a lot more than just catch the ball. They're in a, at least the elite ones that are always on the field. Like Kelsey, he's always in there blocking all the time, too. And it, the body just takes a lot of tear that people don't see. It's a similar kind of like fall of, falling down of a star, the same way we kind of see running backs do in, in a general sense from a production standpoint. Um, I think even with Kansas City not having great talent around them I think Kelsey is also um, a great choice do you think how long 
how much longer do you think Kelsey has in the NFL? Do you think he has another three plus years or do you think it's less than that of, of good to above average production? I was going to say, I think he's got a long time left in his NFL career. Tight ends age in terms of their ability to be on a roster very well in terms of fantasy production. I think that his best days are behind him. We're not going to see anything great. And this year he might not even have a thousand yards. And I know that that's sounding the alarms because he's had a thousand yards each of the past five seasons. In fact, his lowest yardage ever for a season in which he recorded a reception is 862. And if he hit the under on 862, I would not be surprised. I wouldn't bet it, but I wouldn't be that surprised. The guy's missed two games in his career. Two games. Now, I understand that he's built different or whatever nonsense you want to say, but that's positive variance. I don't care what you want to say. It's positive variance, which means negative variance could reap its head and you would go, oh, well, it makes sense. So, yeah, that could happen. And I'm not even talking about that. I'm only talking about age. So do I think that he might, you know, put up 80 catches for 800 yards? Yeah, I kind of think that that's kind of what's going to happen. I don't believe in Travis Kelsey just going off. You know, maybe it's really 90 catches for 900 yards because we have this additional game and it's going to skew, but his average per game is just going to crash. And I think that that's the likely outcome. I don't think it's guaranteed, but if I think it's the likely outcome, I'm staying the hell away from it. You guys heard it here first. James predicting the fall of the Kansas City Chiefs empire. <laughs> um, I, I agree with you. I think that's why they brought in Noah Gray, right? It's kind of anticipating that slow decline. And um, yeah, that's that's why they got to bring it in. They need to do something either way, because as we've kind of discussed earlier, that, that offense outside of Mahomes, that team rather, uh, just not much talent. And if they do want to compete, They'll have to bring in more talent. Kelsey isn't going to last much longer. And Hill, he, I guess he already has tendonitis issues, um, apparently. Maybe that will be a problem long-term for somebody who has to utilize a lot of quick twitch, fast-cut movements. Um, yeah, you know, the, the writing definitely is on the wall, and people just don't want to read it. I agree with you, sir. And so before I want to wrap up the show, I want to thank you for, for your time. But I give people one minute to really discuss or talk about whatever it is that they have on their mind, whether it be advice on life, advice in football, fantasy, players you like, um, anything you really want to talk about uh, for a minute, the floor is yours. Yeah, you know, uh, I guess I'll take this in a slightly different direction and not solely focus on fantasy football. Uh, I'll say that, you know, I'll focus on just Twitter and what fantasy football is on Twitter. It's supposed to be fun. It's a game where you enjoy yourself, you have fun with your friends, and you Take what is a stupid sport when it all comes down to it and you make it fun and you watch it and you have camaraderie. And often we see in Twitter and we see pretty much everywhere else things that are fun get turned into not fun things by people who just don't understand the fun aspect. And that's okay on them. They don't have to enjoy something they don't enjoy. But what you should do is you should make sure to enjoy the things you enjoy. If you're not enjoying something, Take a break. Stop doing it. Who cares? If you are enjoying it, keep going. Enjoy it. Do what you like. If you don't want to play in a fantasy football league because you don't like the settings, don't. If you want to join a league because you've never done one before, 
do it. It's kind of that simple. Do what you think is going to make you happy, and if it's not going to make you happy, stop doing it. I couldn't say it any better. I think we're saying a lot of the fun aspect always dwindle away a bit into arguments and unnecessary debate that leads into slanders things and just other unnecessary stuff. Um, but uh, James, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on. For those who aren't aware, as I said in the beginning, James writes for Rotoballer for fantasy's sake and Gridiron Rating. Uh, James, do you have any type of projects or anything that you're working on that's coming out that you'd like people to know about? I'm eventually going to release my Deep League Dynasty rankings. They have gone on a hiatus due to life stepping in and me not being able to focus as much time as I could on fantasy football, and that's okay. Uh, So those rankings will drop. You'll see them on my Twitter. You'll see them on my websites. You'll get to see me do those. If you're interested in IDP content, I do put out a lot of that for Gridiron Rating. That kind of is my focus. I got a weekly podcast that happens every Tuesday at 10 10 p.m. Eastern. So if you want to check that out, go right ahead. If you want to give me a Twitter follow, go right ahead. If you want to read my rankings and tell me they're really bad, don't follow me and just comment negative things, go right ahead. As long as it makes you happy, I really don't care. And for those who don't know or missed it, James's Twitter is at whatmoney3000. It's spelled exactly how it sounds. And uh, uh, one last tangent, James does create some of the best, most in-depth rankings, in my opinion, more than nearly any other fantasy analyst that you can find without having to pay for. Uh, James is incredibly talented at what he does, and I recommend everybody checking out him and his platforms. Uh, James, thank you so much, man, for coming on. I really appreciate this. Yeah, I'm really happy to come on, talk Contract Dynasty, and just talk football with you, and love to do it again sometime.